Welcome to the Chaka Life Podcast. My guest today is James, an American teacher now teaching abroad. For those of you who hold a teaching certification, there are many incredible opportunities to take that experience around the world and have a satisfying and rewarding career in education. Welcome, James. Tell us a little bit about where you're teaching now. Hi, Ingrid. Uh, Yes, I teach economics and global politics at the International School of Panama in Panama City. How long have you been uh, teaching then? I've been teaching here. This is my first year in Panama, but I've been overseas for seven years uh, teaching economics and politics and geography at the high school level. Uh, Before this, I was in Morocco for six years in Rabat. I see. And what kinds of schools are you teaching at then? They're, they come under the heading of international schools, and there's a there's a wide variety. There are both proprietary uh, and nonprofit schools. Um, there are schools that are tied to specific embassies, and then there are schools that follow um, sort of national curriculum. So you would have British schools, which will follow the the British GCSE, or a, well, a Spanish school or Australian schools. The schools that are labeled American schools generally have a larger American clientele and teaching staff that's American and usually a director that's American. Schools that are labeled international can have the exact same teaching staff, but they tend to follow a more international curriculum whereas they don't teach dollars and cents or they don't teach feet, uh, you know, in the elementary level and at the high school level. Students, for example, are not required to take American history, whereas as an American school they are. So I've taught in both types of schools, both an American school, um, which was largely indistinguishable from the international school I'm in now. So basically you've had the two experiences, Morocco and Panama? Yes, exactly. And how did you first get the idea to teach abroad? It was a, a kind of a funny – So I sort of backed into it um, accidentally. I, I had a Fulbright – exchange from the the State Department to go to South Africa to teach there. And I ended up turning it down and um, with the mistaken belief that I could find another Fulbright at the same time. I turned it down for a variety of reasons. And I was fully prepared to leave the the United States that that September. Uh, I thought I'd be gone. And um, then I found out in March that there was no second Fulbright coming. And so I sort of in a panic, I, I did an internet search for international teaching and I found this uh, headhunter organization called International School Services. And I've come to find out later that there's basically two dominant players in the international teaching world. It's International School Services or ISS and the other one's called Search Associates. And so I threw my resume up there and they give you a list of schools that are still searching. And I was completely unaware. I was completely you know, operating blind, not aware that March in the international school world, March is basically the hiring season is over. Really, the hiring season runs from December to February. And so all that was out there were these few scraps of schools. And um, I ended up getting an interview in Brazil. And then my wife took a better position, realizing that we probably weren't going to go overseas. She took a better position at a job in Oregon. So we, I ended up backing out of that. But just a funny side note is that in September of that year, that same school year, um, where I was staying in the, in the States for the, that year, um, I got a job offer on um, the Sunday of Labor Day weekend. The phone rings and it's this you know, long number with a bunch of digits I don't recognize. And it's the director of a school in Saudi Arabia who's asking me to start the following Sunday in, in Saudi Arabia. 
And I said, I, uh, I probably won't be able to take that position, but so it can happen. You know, it's still even really late starters could get a, a job. Yeah, at that point, I was committed to going overseas, and so we started the process a lot earlier the following year. Um, and I got a job by early February in Rabat. And then this year, this time, we started the process even earlier, and I was hired on December first to come to Panama. So you use these two search firms, basically these headhunter firms, then to secure these jobs. Yeah, short answer. Uh, use the, the the search firms. There's, there's also a couple free. Those are subscription based. You have to pay. Uh, there are a couple free options out there as well. And then there's a newspaper called Thai Online, the International Educator Online, and they um, they publish. They don't really do anything for you other than just publish listings for you. And, and you did, search. did you have a teaching degree? Before. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's this is the this is the misconception that I had that I operated under for a long time. That I thought that these international schools are basically like schools for for rich kids who didn't really know what they wanted to do, who had just graduated college and wanted to go teach internationally for a bit. I had no idea the caliber and the quality of these schools that was out here. It's absolutely incredible. Um, most reputable schools, although you can always find a, a school a fly by night place, but most reputable schools will require require at least three years of teaching, at least a master's degree, and, and, a, and absolutely require a teaching license. These schools that, are, that ISS and Search and other places uh, recommend are they're, they're looking for experienced teachers from the U.S. and from the U.K. and Australia. Uh, and really, it, to be honest, it, if the, the caliber and the quality that the parents are expecting, if you were to walk in right off the, you know, not having any experience, you you would be in a lot of trouble. So, uh, not to say you can't do it, but it is it is a difficult step. So, yeah, these are sophisticated kids, in other words. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. What's your competition like with the UK, maybe, and and other English speaking teachers? Are, are Americans uh, liked more or less? About the same? I think that because of the changes that have happened in the U.S. Um, with the defunding of public education and the increasing levels of, of administrative bureaucracy that's being put on teachers. I think more and more quality teachers are, are fleeing the U.S. And so the, the internationally, you're, it's not it, – I think in the past it used to be sort of free spirits who would do this, teachers who maybe – Americans who you know, wanted to see the world. And now it's, it's teachers coming out of the U.S. who are dedicated professionals who just can't work in the U.S. anymore. And I think that's raising the bar in terms of – what the perception of American educators is like. Um, it also happens a lot regionally. You know, countries that are former British colonies or have connections to the UK tend to have a higher number of, of UKs, just UK uh, teachers, just because it has to do with the peripheral regions and their, their sort of perception of where places to go. Um, last school I worked at was, I would say, overwhelmingly American, 90% American with uh, enough Canadians to, to give a bit of diversity and, you know, the Canadians and the Americans are distinguishable anyway. Uh, oh, don't ever say that. <laughs> yeah, the Canadians hate that. Um, the, um, I'd say overwhelmingly large number of Americans, chunk of Canadians, one or two Brits and uh, an Australian just for fun. But and then there's a, a bunch of Panamanians as well who are either native Panamanians or who are married to Panamanians. And has it been uh, because you didn't know Arabic or did you know mm -hmm. French even went before you went to Morocco? I had high school French and I learned Arabic when I was there. 
uh, that definitely, if anybody's considering, it, it's not an obstacle to move there. It is an obstacle to enjoy the place because you you find after a month or two, you get tired of asking people to have to translate for you. And, you know, it just increases your sense of independence. And so I picked up Moroccan Arabic while living in Morocco. And I had a, enough Spanish before I came to Panama that I could then build on that base over the six months after I got hired that now I, I feel like I have no, I'm pretty comfortable in, in speaking in Spanish here. Although Panamanians don't open their mouths when they talk, so it makes it difficult to understand them. But. So just curious, it sounds like you are competing with high-caliber teachers. So does that equate to better pay at these schools or comparable to the U.S., less, more? Um, it's more. It, I mean, you have to – we always calculate pay based on cost of living rather than the actual dollar amount. So while, while I may get paid $65,000, $70,000 to live in to teach it at the American Overseas School of Rome, you also have to factor that you're living in Rome. So in here where I make it paid half that, the cost of living in Panama is significantly lower. So we every school publishes an index where they, they talk about the savings rate. And generally, my wife and I are able to save a, almost a full salary between the two of us. And that, that's the, the value we use. The schools are definitely because it's a it's a free market for teachers, and all the information is available to all the teachers. Um, they can really price schools and, and see like, okay, I, I don't want to go here because I can't afford it. You know, and generally, you know, it's it's there's three factors. There's there's the cost of living factor. There's the quality of life factor, and then there's the quality of the institution. And so, you can find a really school that doesn't pay a lot. But, you, you know, you get to live on the beach or you get to live in a nice city um, or you can find a school that pays a lot. But like this, for example, International School of Bangkok, relative to the cost of living, you make a lot of money. But you work you work Saturdays, you work six days a week. You, you know, the, the, the expectations are extremely high. And so so it's sort of a mix of those three, quality of life, cost of living and, and quality of the institution. Well, that brings me to my next question about benefits and sort of your time off. How you know? Do you get to enjoy the lifestyle that you're, you're you've gone over there to explore? I think parents and um, administration are well aware that the teachers who have come have come because they they're not just interested in working; they're interested in living as well. And so we get a lot of um, opportunities to to experience the culture through the school. Basically, the school organizing, you know taking students on excursions. You know, I did, when I was in Morocco, I went, the basketball team, we, you know, I coached basketball and we traveled to Barcelona or Lisbon every year to play in a tournament. And then I coached the Model UN program and so we were traveling to Rome or Germany. So most schools have a fairly robust international experience. Also for the students too, they, they want the students to be out there. And in terms of time off, we, we run a 180-day schedule just the same as we do in the U.S., and the vacations fall, you know, where they do. It depends. Europeans get a ski week because that's what Europeans do. And in Panama, we get a week off for Carnival because that's what Panamanians do. So, but we still get 180 days. Um, and, but I will say this, the one huge difference is that I, in the U.S., I was teaching, you know, four different classes. So I would teach government, economics, history, and, you know, history, a different history. Here, I'm much able, I'm able to much to specialize and so I teach economics and politics and that gives me a tremendous amount of freedom because I'm no longer my head's able to be in less places and also I'm prepping less material so I feel like I have more free time um, to to experience the culture 
Right. And so speaking of the culture, what, what have you really enjoyed about um, being overseas and, and this lifestyle in particular? Um, I really, I love language. And so for me, I love learning new languages and then putting them into practice. It's not, you know, it's not an academic exercise for me. It's a much more hands-on. Because I, I do teach economics and politics, I, I really like being in other countries and seeing what's going on behind the headlines and being able to see, like Panama's experiencing a mild inflation rate right now, a rise. And so, I'm, I'm, you know, I can go out, I can look and see the impact of what's that's happening on people. That's more of the geeky side of me that I like. Um, but for me, absolutely hands down, uh, in Panama and in Morocco, it's the, the interactions with the local culture and the travel opportunities that are just, you know, you, you, you know, it's, I just two last weekend, I went diving in the Caribbean, which is an hour and a half drive from my apartment, which is on the Pacific side. And, you know, I, I left the Caribbean at 10 o'clock in the morning and I was back in my apartment in Panama City by 1130, having just done three dives the day before. Like, it's just like, where do you get to do that? You know, it's, right. it's just, right. uh, um, you know, my vacations, my weekends are, you know, I have a three day weekend coming up and I'm, I'm flying to Bogota for the weekend, you know, and it, it, you just don't, you just don't get to do that. Um, and it's also, I feel like in the States, Whereas I may have been able to do that, it just seemed like it was so much further away to fly from, say, you know, Oregon down to San Francisco for the weekend. Whereas here, it's kind of like, ah, you know, I don't have any roots here, so I don't have any obligations here, so I can fly off to Bogota for the weekend. Or it's just a different vibe. Whereas space is space is 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 formulated differently. Is there's no ties here, which is one of the things I would say too is that I've never been a, a big fan of owning stuff it's always been sort of a burden more than a, a pleasure but but when you move overseas you realize really fast like how little you need stuff and so we you know we moved into an apartment where all the furniture is basically with the apartment and when we leave we'll leave all the furniture behind we have a car that we bought that when i leave i'll sell that car to somebody else and and you know when we're not here somebody else can use our car it's it's a very it's like it's not Stuff becomes really unimportant, and which is great because it's not like I'm owning a house that I have a long-term investment in. It's just like I'm residing here now, and then I'll be residing somewhere else later. So, and and along those lines, what kind of people do you meet, and how how is the social life then when you live as an expat like this? Is it do you only hang out with other Americans? What how does that work? Uh, I try. Well, my wife and I try very hard to to mix it up and to, to both when we're in Morocco and here to hang out with locals um, who are both um, long-term residents and also folks who have sort of migrated here and, and are uh, put down, put down stakes. We've only been here for a couple of months, but we've already made friends with some other expats who are not American, but uh, like a Mexican friend and also friends from El Salvador and, and Costa Rica and Colombia. And so that's important. The, it's like living on an island, you know. We, you, all the all the expats know each other at some point, and they, you know, they're all running the same circles. They run into each other. Panama City is a little bit bigger in terms of the expat life because there's so many expats down here. Whereas in Morocco is much more, you know, if you weren't French in Morocco, you knew all the other expats. The French tended to keep to themselves, but the, <laughs> all the other expats knew each other, and um, it was one big. And everybody's, you know, usually very helpful. 
um, you know, with helping people transition in and, and very welcoming. And it's not hard to get invited to social events. We expected that we would have more entertainment from the embassies and the foreign embassies, the Dutch and the, the, the Spanish embassies tend to be very open and the Germans. The American embassies I've found don't tend to invite Americans to stuff. I don't know what the deal is, but we don't even get, we don't even get invited to 4th of July. I wonder um, if that's a security issue. They're just so paranoid. No, they invite other, other nationalities. They just don't invite Americans. I don't, know, I don't know what Who it knows? is. Who knows? Huh. Yeah. So well, we then, thought we'd be going to like embassy parties and you know wearing tuxedos and ball gowns if we don't <laughs> go to those things. Well, and how, how do you hook in um, with people? Is there sort of like a, I don't know, a, a, what kind of online expat community or is it just through the school? How do you usually hook up with other, other expats then? I think for us, the, we have the advantage that we have a tie. We have the school, which ties us in automatically. Um, and so when I, you know, we had open house and I met a bunch of parents and several parents said, hey, let's go out, you know, sit down, talk, go out for a beer. We can talk about life here in Panama. Um, so that's an, for us, that's easy. If somebody else was moving overseas and didn't have a basis of a school, there's, there is, you know, tons of Facebook groups and, um, you know, there's, there's international sporting, uh, what, what's, what am I trying to say? Um, sport leagues, you know, soccer or baseball, or, um, there's a flag football league down here. And so those are always easy tie-ins to get people to meet others. And then if you are, uh, you know, if you're single, then there's there's all the online dating scenes and everything else that happens, um, which I which I don't experiment with because I'm married. But uh, <laughs> but there there are um, those options are I guess are available. Uh, and then you know, really, it's like, it's just uh, you know, people in your building or your neighbors. Um, well, it's kind of um, it's interesting though with the neighbors though because in the states you choose your neighborhood based a lot of times on your income and also your personal tastes. You know, this neighborhood is known for this and this is known for that. Whereas in the international world, you kind of just land somewhere and then you decide if you like it or not. And so your neighbors may or may not be similar to you. Right. So what would you say are the biggest challenges of the lifestyle? Um, I think the feeling of impermanence is probably the biggest challenge. Is you, I know I'm going to be here for a couple of years and then I'm going to leave. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, what, how many times am I willing to do this before I just get tired of integrating? You know, that's kind of the uh, – right now I'm not, I'm not exhausted by it at all. But I can see that maybe 15 years from now I might move to, I don't know, Malaysia and say, you know what? I'm not going to learn Malay. I'm just going to learn – I'm going to stick with English and I'm going to stick with Americans and, you know, forget this. And that's, that's a fear of mine that, that I don't want that to happen. So that's one of the obstacles is just I guess you could, you could get really tired of change. But then you can always go back to the States I guess if that happens. Uh, the other sort of – Obstacle or, or, or um, um, problem is that you you miss home, but not for, I mean for different reasons. I mean some people can get tied up in creature comforts and like they miss Nestle Quick for example, or they miss yellow mustard. But you know you, you after I've been overseas for seven years now. I've got nephew nieces and nephews who I you know I met once that which was this summer. Um, you, you sort of you know you're kind of outside the loop and and. What's interesting is that while a lot of your friends and family will express interest in the, oh, that's great that you live overseas and that's so exciting, really they don't want to hear all the stories. <laughs> like they, their life, their lives are very important to them and yours seems like vacation. And so it gets, um, it's, it's really, you know, difficult to, to say, 
how many awesome experiences you, you really have to like limit yourself. I find myself censoring myself with friends and family about how amazing my life actually is because, because <laughs> it is really incredible. And so, right. Because you're constantly having new experiences and that's not something you encounter as much if you live in the same place for all your life or exactly. if you live in the States. So what would you say to someone who uh, wants to teach abroad? Like what are your few bits of advice that you would give them for following the path that you've sure. done? Um, I would say three three things. One would be to get started very early. So right now, uh, September, October would be when schools are starting to put out feelers. Asian schools den- tend to have a deadline of end of October for their teachers to announce whether they're returning or not. Where Latin American schools tend to be in November, European schools in December. Usually for most schools around the world, the deadline is before their winter break. They want to know their openings for the following year. So you really have to get started early. The second thing would be to um, start gathering your letters of reference from your supervisors, um, coworkers, because uh, those are really going to play big in sort of your hiring decisions. And the, other, the last thing I would say is to digitize everything. Uh, you know, I'm a history teacher uh, by trade, and so I have files full of crap that, you know, I, who knows where it came from and it's just sitting these, and, you know, lugging that stuff around the world gets really tiresome. So really put everything in digital format, um, you know, get same thing with your, make your life online, you know, your bank statements, your credit cards, um, you know, you need to have a not, a non-physical existence in the States that you can just take with you. So, you know, Facebook for contacts, things like that. You really want to be going, um, as digital as possible to make yourself as flexible as possible and as mobile as possible. And then the last, I'd say the fourth thing would be not to limit yourself to a region. Um, there's a lot of really interesting schools out there in places you would have never thought of. We, we almost considered moving to Tashkent, Uzbekistan this year, um, just because the school was so incredible. But I have a, I have a real problem with cold weather, so we decided not to, but, but I would have had, I, you know, had I, uh, not, been, I would have considered Tashkent. So you, you put these places pop up on your radar that two days ago I never thought of it. The director approached us, you know, started negotiations with us, and all of a sudden I found myself thinking about Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and and thinking about it positively. So, um, right. you know, there are those options to to keep your keep open mind as to where you could end up. Has it been easy for your wife? Has it been easy for you to both find something where you needed to go? And do the schools help you with that? Yeah, they, we, we are, we're more attractive than most other, for some reason, married couples, um, when you rank the overseas candidates, the married couples come in first, then, then single teachers, then single teachers, or then married teachers with, with spouses that are not teachers. And because I guess we're considered to be more stable, uh, though they also get two for the price of one because they'll pay for my airline tickets. And then if I was, my if my wife was, not a teacher, they would pay for her ticket as well and then have to hire another teacher. So, you know, housing, single teachers get whatever they get for housing and we get, as a couple, we get, you know, less than half of that more. So they're really saving um, on housing for housing benefits for us. So it's economical for the schools. I think if you're, a, if you're considering this as a teaching couple, you know, obviously there's all the things that go into it. If your spouse is a science or a math or a special ed, then, um, you know, they are the more attractive of the two of you and, and you may end up getting hired as an add-on. Uh, so your ego has to be okay with that. But also if you're a, you know, if you're like this year are when we stopped looking after December, but we basically had about eight schools that we would consider going to in the world that had jobs for both of us. 
this year. And more might have opened up after that, but because we were done so early with the hiring process. Um, so that, you know, it kind of does limit your options there. But if you go, if you're, if you're one of the, the candidates who's a teacher with a trailing spouse or family that, that are not educators, then those options are out there as well. And there's a lot of opportunities for your spouse to plug into the school community or to the local network, you know, working as a teacher aide or working uh, in the office or we had a teacher here who came in, her fiance was, you know, trailing spouse, uh, um, had no interest in working. He was going to take the two years off and I don't know what he was going to do. And the school said, Hey, we need another guy in the PE department. Um, you know, and he's a really fit guy. And so he's basically now he's teaching yoga and, uh, and doing working with middle school kids on fitness. And so, you know, so he, that, that's kind of stuff can happen as well. A lot of the teacher aid position are reserved for spouses. And so that spouses are good schools will integrate non-teaching spouses into the community in order to retain the, the teachers they want, because too often the non-teaching spouse can say, you know, well, I'm bored and I want to leave or I'm not happy here. Also, there's lots of opportunities, you know, if you're, if you're raising a family, doing it overseas is, you know, it has its obstacles, but also in, in a lot of ways it's, it's easier because there's a lot of opportunities for domestic help, um, you know, the cultural experiences. And so, you know, one of the two spouses also could be staying home without the same financial burden there would be to do that in the States. So that's, that's another option for trailing spouses. And then the, the other thing is really like, it's an opportunity for, for those who have a trailing spouse who works, you know, independently, I know one couple where the trailing spouse is a graphic designer. And so he's still able to do his stuff um, from where they're in Germany. Now uh, I have another couple where the trailing spouse is an accountant and he's able to consult online with his, with his clients. So, so those options exist as well. Uh, but basically with a, with a spouse, you know, we are both teaching, you're limiting your, your schools. Um, we, there was this year, there were only about eight schools that were open to both of us that had positions for both of us. Uh, there may have been more later, but we got hired so early that we stopped looking after that. We've kind of covered this already, but anything you would have done differently that really sticks out to you? Um, other than digitizing everything, um, at, in the beginning, I've now learned that lesson, uh, but, um, having everything be much more mobile. Um, the other thing is I would, I would have made a more concerted effort to be public about like, like a blog or something like that, where I could, where people could keep better tabs on me, I guess. I don't know if, if people would read my blog, but at least I, I would have done that. Now it kind of seems like, eh, uh, it's too late. But um, that's something I would definitely have done. And then, I don't know, I, I feel like we've made, we've made most of the right decisions, I think, whether, or, or we got lucky. We made the wrong decision and we got lucky with the outcome. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I, the thing I would have done is, had I known, I would have started this process 20 years ago. And it's just such an amazing life that, that I feel, I feel like I'm a better teacher. I feel like I've learned so much as an educator. Um, I'm teaching with other educators who are at the top of their game, teaching highly, highly motivated kids with, you, you know, with parents who expect, a, you know, they're not overbearing, but they definitely expect a, a, you to work hard and to work well. And I, I just feel like the, the level of professional development I've gotten, had I done this 20 years ago, I you know, who knows? It, it it's, would have been an amazing option. Not to say that public teaching in public schools in the U.S. didn't give me a lot as well, but but this is really um, 
helping me grow in, in so many so many ways that uh, I just can't, I, I can't even quantify them. Yeah, it sounds like the ultimate teaching gig, really, to get uh, to get motivated students who and motivated parents. That that's a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It's teaching well, technology classrooms. Yeah, and then do you see yourself moving back to the states at some point? And do you uh, prepare for that in any way? No, the states has lost me as a teacher, as an educator. It's it's something that a number of us. There's actually been a number of articles recently about this. Is that the the, the movement in the U.S. has gone so far away from being able to teach. Um, that I, if I were to go back to the States now, the frustration levels I would encounter would – I love working with kids and I love teaching. And it, it's – from everything I know now it's going on in the States, it's, that's becoming more and more of an obstacle. And it's just – it's unfair and it's, it's sad for the American students. But teachers are dropping out of the public school system uh, like crazy. And I, I won't go teach in a private school in the US because I believe in the value of public education. But it's just I, – I can't foresee myself going back there anytime soon it's, unless the U.S. gets its act together, unless they realize that they need to fund education um, to the level that it, it should be funded. But that's a more of a political discussion than anything else. But, um, <laughs> but really it's, it's – it's, um, I can't see I, – I don't plan on going back. If I do go back, it would be towards the end of my career and, uh, and um, you know, I have to make some decisions then. But I'm a long way away from that, so I'm – I'm totally fine uh, where I am, bouncing around the world. Right. Well, James, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for all of your great advice. And um, I wish you and your wife the best of luck. And thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. For more information or resources about teaching abroad, go to chocolife.com. 